Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that even in the midst of our brokenness, you, you can be glorified. Thank you, Lord, that you use, you use broken vessels. Father, I pray now that you fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us. Work your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Up until a couple of years ago, an amazing number of Christians really couldn't care less about the biblical concept of cities of refuge. It, most of us are like, yeah, okay, whatever. But in the last couple of years, as American sanctuary cities have become dominating parts of the news, all of a sudden there's a lot of people with some very strong opinions as to what's going on with the biblical cities of refuge. In fact, I had a, a friend of mine who dared Christians to preach on cities of refuge. I dare you. And I'm like, it's already on my schedule. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, like about a month from now. So yeah, today we're going to talk about cities of refuge. We even said last week that that Hebron as a city of refuge, that the surrounding countryside was given to Caleb. And I said, we're going to talk about cities of refuge here. And maybe before I do, since I brought it up, I should clarify. Cities of refuge in the Bible are not the same thing as sanctuary cities today, right? It's not a one-to-one correlation. In the Bible and in Great Britain, Cities of refuge or sanctuary cities are places where legal refugees will run to to come for asylum, where they're protected from illegal persecution, from like foreign powers and stuff. In America, sanctuary cities are places where, among other things, illegal aliens go to avoid prosecution for breaking the law of immigration in the United States. So on one level, they're literally exactly the opposite. Biblical cities of refuge and sanctuary cities in Great Britain are places where innocent people go to be protected from illegal prosecution. Sanctuary cities are places where people who are breaking the law can go to avoid legal prosecution. Then again, flip side of that, Both American sanctuary cities and biblical cities of refuge are places for people that should extend their their borders, extend their protection, extend their provision, open their doors to everyone who asks, whether you have proven anything about them or not yet. Every person who asks, without question, is allowed in and is protected. It's the ultimate example of grace. Hopefully, if I've done my job right, both you Democrats and you Republicans are now torqued at me. I hope so. I hope you don't just think that what I did was disagree with you. What I'm doing is disagreeing with 95% of what I've heard on mass media. Because it isn't as simple as, nuh-uh, yeah-huh. Amazingly, biblical arguments are usually a little more nuanced than that. Let's open up the Bible and let's look at this. I want to look at cities of refuge, and we want to start in Joshua, but we're going to bounce around a little bit, but Joshua chapter 20, because we're told that Yahweh said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, and that's an interesting word here, because this is the only place in scripture it's ever used, is in context of cities of refuge. There's other words that are used for refuge, but this word only here, it means asylum, 
It's a place where you go to escape from unjust persecution. It's, it, it's not a place to go if you're guilty. It's a place to go if you're innocent. Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses back in Numbers 35. And we'll get there in a second. So that anyone who kills a person accidentally, unintentionally, may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. If you're a murderer, it doesn't help you to go to a city of refuge. I mean, you might get some respite, but in general, you're going to get in trouble for it. That's not for that. This is a place to run to if you're waiting and wanting a fair trial so that you don't get lynched. That's where this is. Remember, this is before the concept of regional marshals or sheriffs or things. So if there's going to be justice done about a murder, it's either going to be done by the king and his soldiers, and let's be honest, they often have their own agendas, right? You think so? Think some political leaders might have their own? Anyway, or it's going to be town elders and motivated family members. So if, if, if Floyd Hatfield kills Bucky McCoy, should he just get away with it because there's no sheriff? There's no circuit court judge? Is that the way that should work? Just... Or, or should the McCoy clan just kill him because he killed one of their kin? Is that the way that should work? Of course, then the Hatfields have to kill the McCoys because they killed one of their kin. And it turns into a big feud, right? Which should it be? Should he get away with it or should it just be a feud? Pardon me? Other, because those are not your only two options. What the Bible is saying is, hey, maybe Floyd should have some neutral ground that he could claim asylum at until he could plead his case and prove his innocence. I didn't mean to kill him. It was not murder. But verse 3 there has another really interesting word that we may not have picked up on. What is an avenger of blood? Because it's not just a vigilante. The word there is... Gaal, Goel, the same word, kinsman, redeemer, that you see in Ruth. Remember how Boaz was the hero because he's the kinsman, redeemer? The guy who hunts you down and kills you out in a field. Same word. It is the one who makes it right with blood. That guy. The revenger is the redeemer. It's the same word to buy back the honor of our family, either by buying back our land with my money or by shedding your blood because you're guilty. Either way, I am going to use something valuable to buy back what our family deserves. That's what a ga'al does. That's what I'm doing. And it might sound like Hatfields and McCoys. It might sound like this big old feud, but there are some definite rules as to why this is supposed to work the way it's supposed to work to prevent that from happening. So in Numbers 35, we'll bounce back to, to Joshua 2, but in Numbers 35, Yahweh, chapter nine, or chapter 35, verse 9, Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, this asylum place, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from this revenger, this gall, so that the person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. This is a stopgap measure. Not to protect the guilty, but to protect everybody involved and still make sure that the guilty, even the guilty, get a fair hearing. So this is the ancient world equivalent of, um, of when the sheriff uh, 
has locked a guy in the, in the town jail who's been accused of murder, and he's going to wait for the circuit court judge, right? There's been roughly 9,000 Western movies made about that, right? And the townsfolk all want to lynch him because he killed somebody. And the sheriff's like, we don't know that yet. The guy's kinfolk all want to spring him because you can't keep our kin in jail. And he's like, no, wait a minute. Yes, we can. In fact, this is the safest place for everybody. If I just keep him behind bars until the circuit court judge comes and gives him a fair hearing. But already, before we go into anything else, there's an interesting detail here. I've already alluded to. Every one of these refuge cities, every one of these places is supposed to open their doors to anyone who comes and says, I accidentally killed somebody. Please save me from the revenger, right? Until they can get a fair hearing, they open the doors and let him in, right? Which means that this is arguably the first example of innocent until proven guilty in human history. This literally does not come back around again until, what, the 18th century? I mean, the closest you have is like the 6th century in England where they had sanctuary laws, and even that's a little different. In England, you would have to go to a sanctuary. You have to go to a monastery, to a cathedral, or to a church, and you have to go inside and go, I'm claiming that I'm in a sanctuary. Everybody can see that I'm here, right? It's equivalent to like in scripture where people would run into the tabernacle or into the temple and fling themselves in the horn of the altar and go, you can't kill me, I found my mom base! <laughs> right? Which gets really interesting linguistically. Not that most of you, I care. It gets interesting linguistically because what that means is that people started equating a sanctuary with a place of safety. When that's not even remotely what that word means, is it? Sanctuary means a holy place set apart. But we go, oh, it's a sanctuary. It's a bird sanctuary. It's a place where birds worship? Anyway, but I'm going to come back to this. These six towns, we're told, you're going to give, will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan, three in Canaan as cities of refuge. In fact, Joshua 20 and 21 actually tell us which six cities this would end up being for the Israelites. There's Golan and Ramoth and Bezer on the east or left bank of the Jordan, if you ever hear them talking about the left bank in the news. And then Kadesh and Shechem and Hebron on the western or right bank of the Jordan. So what's interesting is that each of these cities come from a different tribe. Each tribe has to give up one of their cities to be a sanctuary city or a city of refuge. Hebron comes from the tribe of Judah. Shechem from the tribe of Ephraim. Kadesh in Galilee from the tribe of Naphtali. They're all giving up one of their cities to do this. So that no matter where you are, you're never more than 30 miles away from a city of refuge. They're all accessible. And the city gate is always open. But all of these cities of refuge were also specifically Levite cities. They're specifically cities that each of the tribes give up to the Levites that are now also sanctuary cities. They're by definition holy already, set apart places that are set apart for people whose very lives are set apart for God. So fleeing to one of these cities of refuge is technically an extension of fleeing to the altar, which actually I suppose means that the the uh, the British in uh, the 6th century got it right. You know, this, this idea of saying, yeah, it's like going to a holy place, finding safety in God's holy place. Well, 
Numbers 35:15. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites, aliens, any other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. And that's another interesting point. I love this. Because these cities of refuge in Israel were not just for citizens of Israel. These were for absolutely everybody, including aliens, including non-citizens. And if any one of you thinks I've riled up the wrong group, I'll even say illegal aliens should come here freely and find refuge. There, now I've offended everybody. Everyone gets to come here. And in the ancient world, you have to remember that non-citizens rarely had any rights under any laws. I mean, there was no provision. Anybody could do more or less whatever they wanted to. Okay, do you remember when when they were going to flog Paul in public until he mentioned, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and all of a sudden everything changed because they're like, oh, wait, this man has rights. He didn't a minute ago because he wasn't a citizen. Because Rome, that had really good laws for the most part, had no provision for non-citizens in that respect. But here, in numbers, God is like, oh no, I'm making provisions for absolutely everyone. This is asylum for everyone. It has nothing to do with your background. It has nothing to do with your family. Nothing to do with your pedigree. Nothing to do with your, with your wealth. And I love that in, in uh, verse 30 it says, by the way, if you're going to convict somebody, you have to have some witnesses. You can't just go, I just know it. No, it doesn't work like that. But I love that in the next two verses, specifically says, and you can't buy your way out. There is no bribery that's going to get you out of your consequences. You're, if you're guilty, you're guilty. I don't care whether you're dirt stinking poor or you're filthy stinking rich. This is a totally fair system, working the same for absolutely everyone. That was unheard of in the ancient world. But God's saying, no, I want this to be absolutely fair. And again, i got to come back to saying, is this a good example of sanctuary cities today or not? One side of the equation is going to say yes. The other side of the equation is going to say no. Maybe we should both listen a little bit better to each other. Because this is for people to say, I swear I am innocent. And the city to say, and even if you aren't, we open our doors and we will minister to you. This is huge. It's an expression of grace. Open to anyone who chooses it. Anyone who chooses it. Then again, if a killer doesn't choose to go to the city of refuge, the killer says, I know I'm innocent, but I'm going to go hide in the hills. You go, well, you're on your own, monkey boy. Good luck. I don't think you're going to survive. The entire, entire Hatfield clan is out looking for you. I'm pretty sure you're toast. I'm sure I can make it. I'm pretty sure you can't. Good luck. Especially since it's right there. You're, not, you're never farther than 30 miles from a city of refuge whose doors are wide open. Go there. I can do this on my own. Pretty sure you can't. And why would you? Why would you? Because you're supposed to go to this. When this We're told in Joshua chapter 20, verse 4, when this alleged killer flees to one of these cities, he's to stand in the entrance of the city gate, state his case before the elders of the city, just like Boaz at the gate in Ruth chapter 4, or, or Absalom at the city gates in 2 Samuel 15. That's where the business is done, which actually is really interesting. Why is it that Samson stole the city gates of Gaza and took them to Hebron? Anyway, 
Then these elders are to admit him into their city. You go, have they proven anything? Have they proven his innocence? Has he proven he's not an illegal alien or a murderer? Has he proven anything? Has he proven that he's paid his taxes? He's a good contributor to the country. Has he proven anything? Nope. But they're to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them, even before they know if he's innocent. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally without malice aforethought. And again, we're back to those old Western movies where the sheriff is defending the accused killer locked up in his town jail. He's protecting the townsfolk from becoming murderers as much as he's protecting this guy, isn't he? I don't want you to go lynch some innocent man and then later go, well, I guess we're murderers. You know, now i got to hunt you down. So how about we follow some rules of law? Get some witnesses and nail this down. I'm protecting you guys. Though in the movies, the townsfolk never see it that way. Because they already know they're right. Why do they have to question, right? The accused is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time. Then he can go back to his own home and town where he fled from. Which is another interesting point. It's, it's not that they find him innocent and then send him on his way, saying, go, be happy. That'll get him killed, won't it? We here in Hebron say that you're innocent. Okay, go back to Nazareth. Bye-bye. And the Hatfields hunt you down, right? That'll get him killed. They only send him on his way if they find him guilty. If you're guilty, then we kick you out of the city and you're back on your own again. But if he's found guilty, then the Gaul can hunt him down. There's no guilt on him. If he's found innocent, then he's given a home here in Hebron or wherever. He's given a home here. Food, protection, community. Rabbinic law suggests that the high priest's mom herself should make sure that they get fed and taken care of so that they never want the high priest to die. Yeah, think that through. You might think, well, that's great, but I'm sure that this guy would love to just get back to his old life, wouldn't he? Like, I found innocent. Don't I get to go back home? Can I go back to normal? There is no normal. There is no normal anymore. There is no life that you get to go back to like that. Your life from this point has changed. You took a human life. Accidentally. Okay. Yippee. That's why we're not stringing you up. But blood's been shed. Everything changes. But that's not what I want. It doesn't matter what you want. It's physics. It's socio-legal physics. Blood has been shed. That blood is on your hands. Even if you're not guilty, you're still covered by that blood. It's going to change the rest of your life. It has to change the rest of your life, doesn't it? Even if it was an accident. The only time you can go home is once the high priest finally dies. That's the statute of limitations. The idea being that nobody should still have malice when something as horrific as the death of the high priest happens. High priest is dead. Never is just in mourning. No, don't go kill somebody else. At that point, all bets are off, but the Gaal is supposed to let it go. The entire matter is now closed. If the Gaal then goes, hunts him down, but now, now he's the murderer. Now we're going to do the same thing with him. But until then, the accused has this new home, new family, provided for, integrated into the community, the Levite community, right? 
where everything that they have, they've received from the temple, from God himself. Because Deuteronomy said that the Levites have no share, no portion among the brothers. Yahweh is their portion. Joshua 18 said the priestly service of Yahweh is their portion. That's their inheritance. And now that's equally true of those who have sought refuge in God's holy place. Now he's your portion. Now he's your inheritance. Okay, let's pray. It's an interesting history lesson. But it's tempting to go, um, I, I guess there's some stuff I can pull from that. Is there? Is there stuff that we can pull from that today? I mean, King David wrote a psalm where he said, Psalm 9 that we read earlier, Yahweh is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. It's not the same word for refuge. Like I said, that's only used in that respect. But it is a word that is being used here to mean stronghold or refuge. In fact, it's the same word that the NIV translates two different ways in the same verse to try to bring out this idea of Yahweh is a place that you can run to and it's a stronghold. You're running to a safe, good, high place. And those who who know your name will trust you. For you, Yahweh, have never forsaken those who seek you. They know your name and your name is a strong tower. That's what we should be running to. Not just the citizens, not just the rich, not just those who have earned grace as if you could earn grace anyone who seeks God's refuge. So sing praises to Yahweh, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood, again, different word, and yet still talking about somebody who is shedding blood to make things right. He who avenges blood remembers. He doesn't ignore the cry of the afflicted. So you go, well, God himself, God himself effectually becomes a city of refuge that you run to, a city of refuge that you seek solace in, a city of refuge where you're taken care of. Think about what Jesus preached. He said, you've heard it said in, in Matthew 5, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor like it says in Leviticus 19:18, but then you should probably just hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I love that he's not negating the law at all. He's not saying, well, we're doing, getting rid of that city of refuge thing. We're getting rid of the whole redeemer, avenger thing. It's that he's fulfilling it. Because that extended quote from Leviticus is, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Don't act just like a gaal on your own recognizance. But love your neighbor as yourself. Because I am Yahweh. Because I've got this. Don't take that kind of, I will be the redeemer. I will be the revenger. I will be the one who who does all this, I will be the one who takes revenge. No. Let God do that. That's, that's what he wants to do. Ultimately, we're not supposed to be the judge, jury, executioner. It's Yahweh who's this Gaal. It's Yahweh. Which is what you think about technically when Paul's speaking in Romans. In Romans 12, he says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people even of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody and if it's possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone you guys are an ambassador of god live like cities of refuge you be that for broken people accused people offensive people wrong people innocent people who are being hunted down every people to find some degree of safety regardless of whether they're rich or low position or jews or greeks or slaves or free or male or female or any of that 
Do not take revenge, my friends, Paul says, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written in Deuteronomy 32, it's mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. The extended quote there in Deuteronomy 32, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. In Deuteronomy 32 and 35, in verse 36, it says, Yahweh will judge his people. That's his job, not yours. Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. It's like, y'all just want to jump to being so bloodthirsty. Y'all so certain that you're right. So certain. But that's not your job. It's God's job to judge. And he will. But it's interesting, because he's not just saying, I don't want you to be bloodthirsty. I will be. It's God's job to judge, and he'll have compassion. That's what he's looking for. Mercy over judgment. So maybe think of it this way, if you want an application for today. Think of the cities of refuge as a snapshot of our forgiveness, of our salvation at God's hand. Picture being the alleged killer and the Avenger Redeemer, because it's the same role, is going to seek you out. You are being hunted and you will be found. Blood will be shed to pay for guilt. Or something valuable will be spent to buy back what rightfully belongs to the family. That will happen. The ultimate Gaal, the perfect one, is after you. One way or the other. It's just that in Christ, he did both. Blood was shed for guilt. And someone was bought back for the family with that blood. His blood was so perfect. And I don't, I don't, that's not even hyperbole. So perfect, so sinless, so right. One drop bought it all back. Absolutely bought it all back. It, one man, one action paid back everything that everybody had done for centuries. And he offers us his holy place. Offers it to everyone. It has nothing to do with your background and your family and your pedigree or your wealth. It has nothing to do with your citizenship or any kind of grace that you've earned. It has nothing to do with that because you've been given a new citizenship. You've been given a new city. You've been given a new family. You've been given a new home. You've been provided for. There is no normal to go back to because it has changed because it has to be changed. Blood's been shed. There is no going back. You are covered with blood. It's your choice whether you say, and I accept that, wash me clean, or if you go, get that blood off of me, I don't want it. I'll do this on my own. It's your choice. Christ's life was lost. His blood was shed. We're either covered by it or we refuse to be covered by it. Either way, either way that you choose, your life changes forever, doesn't it? This is beautiful expression of free, costly grace. Open to everyone who chooses it. And if you don't choose it, if you don't choose to flee to Christ's city of refuge, there's no hope for you to escape blood guilt, is there? You're like, I, I can do it on my own. Pretty sure you can't. And why would you? It's right here. It's accessible. The gate's open. It's free to you. Come. Why would you? God offered to be our Gaal, our Redeemer. Or he will be our Gaal, our blood revenger. Either way, he's doing the same role. Which side of it do you want to be on? 
Or maybe if you knew somebody, if you knew somebody who was under blood guilt back in the day, you're wandering around in Joshua's time and you know somebody who unintentionally killed someone, wouldn't you tell them about a city of refuge? Or would you say, good luck, maybe grow a beard. Shave your beard, shave your beard. I don't know. Would you do that? Would you say do it on your own? Or would you say, I really think you, you should go to a city of refuge? Which, which would you do? Would it, be, would it be loving to tell people that they need a city of refuge? Would it be loving not to offend them by suggesting that they should? What does it suggest that you and I should tell people if Jesus really is the ultimate revenger and the ultimate redeemer and the ultimate city of refuge, if he's all of it, all intertwined, and if he knows everybody's hearts and you will be hunted down to be saved or hunted down to be held accountable, but you will be hunted down, he's not going to care so little that he doesn't matter what happens to you. What should we do? One last thing, one last thing. The statute of limitations on all of this is when the high priest finally dies, right? That, that All bets are off. It's supposed to be over, but you're no longer under the provision of the protection of the city of refuge. Up to that point, we're, we're, we find you a house. We find you food. We hand you clothes. We give you a livelihood. Once the high priest is gone, you're on your own again. Remember that greatest sermon ever written? I love Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. And there's actually a lot of, a lot of translations out there that, that try to reflect the, the force of this in Greek by adding the concept of we who have fled to take refuge in the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the, for the soul, firm and secure. It, it enters the inner sanctuary, the, the safe place, the, no, the holy place. It enters into this holy place of God behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, preparing a sanctuary, preparing, preparing houses for us, preparing a home for us, preparing a city of refuge on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, our high priest is never going to die. Not again. This is a forever city of refuge. God's presence, the inner holy place, this ultimate city of refuge, is either a terrifying place or the safest place on earth or above the earth. And we who have been declared innocent through the blood of our God, whether we were innocent or not innocent, we are declared innocent. Our Redeemer, who could have just as easily been our revenger, if we can safely stay in refuge in that holy place until the death of the high priest and our high priest was never going to die, what does that say about your salvation? What does it say? That our salvation, our forgiveness, our protection, our provision, our family, our community is never going to pass away. That Paul talks about being there for us, that Jesus talks about being there for us, that Peter talks about being there for us, and it's never going to spoil, it's never going to fade, it's never going to rust, it's never going to. There is no statute of limitations. 
There's no limitation. From Numbers, through Joshua, through Psalms, through the Gospels, through today, the Gospel has always been the same. God has always been the same. He calls sin, sin, and holds us accountable to it. And says, blood has to be shed for that. And then says, I'm willing to shed for that. It is absolutely toxic. It's absolutely an abomination. It will absolutely kill you. I have provided an antitoxin in my blood. And I have brought you from death to life. And it's a life that will never, ever have to worry about reaching a statute of limitations. He's created a holy place for all of us. Not just for us, but for them, and for those people, and for her, and for him, and for me, for everyone. And he's called all of us to run to him for that salvation. And that salvation is always nearby. And it's always accessible. And the gate is never locked to you or to anyone you would bring there. So how should we respond? If we genuinely believe the Bible, how should we respond? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you, you care so much that you never wink at sin and say, eh, it's okay. And protect us so that we can sin more. But you never rail against sin so much that you say, you've sinned, therefore you're dead to me. You're my enemy. Instead, you say, you've sinned. And you desperately need a redeemer. Lord, I thank you for being our redeemer. As we come to your table, as we come to eat the Lord's Supper together, I pray that you remind us of who this is for and what it means. Help us never take it lightly, but to genuinely appreciate all that you've said and done. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. If you're a Christian, if you are part of the family of God, if you have given your heart to the Lord, if you've been washed clean by his blood, this is a family meal. Join us. If you're not a Christian, if you have not accepted Christ, if you've not been washed clean, this is a family meal. I encourage you to stop and consider why those around you are doing this. But for all of us, this is a time to remind ourselves that we come to the Lord's table not because of what we've earned, but because of what we've earned and what has been given to us to pay for what we've earned, that we never earned. So I, 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 I pray that as we come to this, that you stop and you say, Lord, work your heart into my heart and remind me, remind me of what this means. Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you for this food that we're about to eat. I thank you for what it means. I thank you for what it reminds us of. Lord, work your heart into our heart. Help us to remember your body that was for us. We give this to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for it. Amen. I'm going to ask the servers to hand out this bread. Um, you'll see that there's some smaller pieces. Those are for people that... Uh, need to make sure that they remain gluten-free, but I encourage all of us to hold on to the pieces until everybody's been served so that we can eat together. I encourage you to serve your family.
Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take and eat the bread. Lord, we thank you that it wasn't just your body that was given to us, not just suffering. I thank you that it was your blood that was shed that washes us clean, that you are our blood revenger and our blood redeemer. Thank you, Lord, for buying us back from our own sin. Thank you for for paying for adoption into your family. Thank you for everything that that blood represents. Please bless this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you could hold on to the cups until everybody has been served, and then we will drink together. Please serve your family. Paul says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the cup that was supposed to symbolize redemption, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Please take and drink the cup. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming. Amen. Amen.